I'll get into that. Uh, I, I want to address um, the elections a little, and I want to um, tell you that um, I don't know about you, but um, for me, and this isn't for Republicans, Democrats, whatever, but this is really just people voting righteousness, voting their hearts in righteousness. And um, I was shocked by what I saw happen this week. Um, and I was listening to everybody uh, kind of the blame game that goes around afterwards. They were blaming um, the political parties and they were blaming the electoral process. And uh, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, um, the culture is a direct reflection of the condition of my church. And I feel like um, that when the church has an entitlement then the culture is going to um, represent an entitlement culture. And, and so I, I was so impacted by that, and I think it goes along with the message of grace that I'm going to be preaching this morning. And my heart is broken for the people and how we don't understand grace and how we don't... Um, the majority of the church has taught that Jesus is Santa Claus and that um, we don't understand uh, the principle of suffering and sanctification. We don't understand what it is to be priests to God. Um, we have preached and taught, many of the churches have taught that we just come on Sunday mornings and, and we punch the clock that the message of grace is that there's grace to live however you want to live. And so my heart is really broken this morning over it. And I just wanted to share that with you because if you look at the, the, um, the diagram that I put together last week, um, what the Lord really showed me is that the church is stuck in this place of justification. And the messengers of God haven't been teaching and training and telling the people, and they haven't been feeding them with fresh bread from heaven. Statistics show that most pastors in America spend 15 minutes on the average in prayer every week, which is completely heartbreaking. Because if we don't go to heaven, how can I give you what Jesus is saying? How can I give you a fresh word that you need to hear, a now word, a rhema word? Because without that, I can't. You can't be led. You can't be fed. And so this place where we see this process that God has set out for us in order to ensure his, his bride, and that's, that's the end game, the end game is not that we would live the American dream, but the end game as Christians is that we would be made into the likeness of His Son, that we would be a bride ready for His return, that, that the inside would look more glorious than the outside service and works. That we have majored on the minors instead of majoring on the major, which is the eternal life of God within us. God wants you to be a son. 
doesn't want you to live the American dream. God doesn't give a flip about the American dream. He wants to prosper us. The women are prospering. We lose women. He will have a praying church. He will have a priesthood in the land. He will have his bride, and it's going to come through prayer or persecution. He is going to refine us, and we get to be the ones who decide what that looks like. And I don't know about you, but I choose prayer. I would much rather have prayer than persecution. And this is not just for our nation and, and, the, and the body as a whole, but this is for our own lives. Because we see what lives look like without the priesthood, and, and then we see what life looks like with the priesthood. And certainly, we cannot carry the measure of glory that he wants us to walk in as he, as he creates in us the priesthood, and he moves us on into the place of authority, which is to operate as kings in the earth. Because you can't function as a king when you're over here in the, in the place of justification, because you have no understanding of who he is. Because you didn't go there yourself to find out. You cannot live and grow out of the revelation that another man has gotten of who Christ is. You've got to get it for yourself. When he creates a nice community, which is really good, and I have Christ in me, and, and, and it helps in the sanctification process. But really, what he's saying, and what I believe Paul is saying very clearly in Romans, is he's talking about the spirit of grace that we have to access for ourselves so that we can be sanctified, purified with gold. I had a dream this week um, where out of the pit was coming some creatures. It was horrifying. They were made of semen, and they were coming up out of this, out of this pit and out of this bottomless place. And I saw that they were coming, and I began to yell at people, "We have to run! We have to run! These creatures are coming, and they're coming after us!" And they began to look like the Joel two situation where they began to cover the land, and everything in their pathway they destroyed and consumed. And I know that the word is saying that that there is an enemy that is coming, and if we don't know him, we will get taken away by this great outpouring from this demonic army. And and he showed me we were escaping in boats, and we were escaping in this water. I was telling everybody, get in the boats, get in the boats, so that we can make our escape. And I saw there was another group over here, and they began to take this other group. And they grabbed them and bit them in the back of the neck and began to pour out a liquid mercury into their brains. And their brains solidified and became hard and they fell down dead. They got one of us and began to do the same thing. But we were filled with gold, so therefore the metal could not permeate and penetrate our minds. And it is a place where we have been refined. And we've allowed ourselves to become gold. That we can survive and prosper in the coming days. So, in the days to come, worship is going to be very important. And if you look on this, each one of these 
The place of worship is the place where you will prosper. The place of worship is the place that you will continue along this journey from justification to sanctification and on to glorification. So, um, turn your Bibles to um, Romans 4. Let's start there. So, the Spirit of grace basically enables us to believe in what we don't see. The Spirit of grace enables us to believe in what we don't see. The Spirit of grace enables us to walk in faith. And it gives us the faith in order to believe that Christ is who He says He is, that He's good, that He loves us, so that we can trust His leadership in our lives. That every situation that is presented to you uniquely in your life is a is part of the process of sanctification to get you from a place of being an orphan to being a son. It is the spirit of grace that helps us to mature, to overcome, to fulfill, and to make us these mature sons. It makes us grand champions and superstars in the kingdom. It creates a fire in our bellies. The spirit of grace creates a fire in our bellies that causes us to be hungry for the more of Jesus. It's the thing that causes us, no matter what obstacle has been presented to us, it is the thing that causes us to overcome. It is the thing that says that within you that causes you yourself to say, I will not be held back. I will win this race because I care more about the inheritance of God than I do my own life. And so it's the thing that creates the ministers that are flames of fire. A few of them are David, Zerubbabel, Jesus, the apostles, William Brennan, Maria Woodworth Eller, Freddie Baker, David Hogan. Some of those were in the Bible. Some of those were part of the Latter Rain Revival. And some of those lived today. They have access to the spirit of grace and they understand how grace functions in their life. So therefore, they are caught on fire and they, they burn and burn and burn because they continue to draw on this grace and they learn how to operate and function in this place. And so the church in America has got to understand, and I believe what he's doing, is he's pouring out the revelation of the grace of God. And I know that because he has established us as the house of Zerubbabel that functions in a double measure of grace in order for the capstone to come. The last generation, the end time generation, God is tying up all of human history in this capstone generation, and he's going to do it with a double portion of grace. And he's saying that, the, that for all of church history, that they have functioned in the grace of God to move them along the journey from justification to sanctification to glorification, but very few have accessed the place of glorification. 
you see people, one here, one there, one there, and there is one. And, and some of us have read their writings and about the incredible encounters that they had, and how they accessed heaven, and how they brought heaven to the earth. But very few of them were able to do this to function in a double measure of grace. But God is saying that I've prepared this for an entire generation. And if you look at the people who have gone before you and studied them, and you see how they've done it, you can actually function in that same measure. Paul even says that, imitate me as I imitate Christ. How many of you love that? I'm ready for the double measure of grace. We know that God is doing this, and we know that it's happening now because we can see with our eyes those that have the eyes to see an outpouring of a reestablishment of the priesthood in the earth. Because God is reestablishing houses of prayer in the spirit of the tabernacle of David, right? In the Mount of Olives. But we know that he's not talking about a building because they were talking about it in the first church. They were talking about this tabernacle of David being reestablished, and they didn't go around setting up buildings with carbon and gold models, did they? They didn't go and get singers and, 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 and uh, players. They were like, oh, let's reestablish the, the tabernacle of David. No, they were talking about a temple that was going to be built where the angels ascend and descend on us. But God knew that he had to reestablish the Old Testament priesthood so that we could understand when the new priesthood arises out of that. Does everybody understand what I just said? You got it? Anybody not? Okay, let me say it again. God is reestablishing an Old Testament type of priesthood. So out of that, the New Testament priesthood could be born again. So we have to see the old for the new to come forth again. And the new will operate as both priest and king to God. The temples are not well. I'll, I'll preach about this all the time. We have to God and man, da 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 we understand. All right, so you are the living temple. That's what God's doing. He is reestablishing you as kings and priests to God. But we have to see the form first. And, 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 and this is a miracle. And it says it in Zechariah 3 when he's talking about the priesthood of this temple of Zerubbabel. Because he says to Joshua that I'm going to come and I'm going to make you clean as a priest. And they're putting turban on your head. And he says this, and you will be, you and your friends will be a sign and a wonder. Why? Because he was talking about this generation and the releasing of the priesthood again in the days of evil, when there are so many other things that will try to, to uh, fight for your time and for your life, there will be a priesthood that is that God raises up in the earth that goes completely against culture. You are a sign and a wonder because you have said that the, I have been drawn away. And God is raising up a generation-wide priesthood so that He can then pour out a double portion of grace and you can become a king and walk in the glorification and the greater glory of God.
So he, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 9.8, and he says, listen, that there is a greater grace that is available to us. 2 Corinthians 9.8, and God is able to make all grace, all grace abound towards you, but you always have an all-sufficiency in all things. They have an abundance of grace for every good work. So here's the picture of grace. All right, do y'all remember the Wizard of Oz? Okay, pretty easy, right? Grace is oil. When you put oil on something, it has an indelible mark. And what it does with the kingdom, do you remember? What was he going for? What was the thing that he didn't have? He didn't have a father. So he, he wants to have a father. And that's, that's exactly what we're doing. We're going from that spirit where we're, where we're all orphans and we don't understand the love of God and we're scared and nervous and fearful and, and he's, he's taking us along our journey and he's saying, okay, I'm going to give you a heart. I'm going to give you a heart that's after me. I'm going to give you a heart that, that is fully functional and fully alive, right? This is a mature son, one that is filled with the love of God to overflowing. So the poor man's on his journey and thank goodness for uh, Dorothy, she's got the little can of oil and what does he do? He gets stuck. Oh, Oh wait, this part of me is stuck. I can't. This part of me is sin, and I can't. I'm, I can't go on because I'm stuck. And so she would, you know, take the little thing and she would and, and move it around. And okay, then he can carry on with his journey. Same thing. He would dry and put that spirit of grace on that area. And and thank God that God fills his back like onions, and he just doesn't go. Okay, let's get to the core right now. <clears throat> you know. But we're on the journey, and along the journey, as we get dry in these areas, it's God saying, I want to take that from you so that you can be a son in that area. So that you understand my love in that area of sin in your life, and I'm going to take that from you, but I'm going to require you to do it not by might nor by power, but by my spirit of grace. So understanding the end game, he tells us, Paul tells us in Romans that the end game is glorification. So there are people, and you all know people, that have stopped along this journey. They'll get stuck in the place of justification, and they don't want to go on. They're like, they're fully satisfied in their lives, you know, and one of, the, one of the things that he says to us is it's very hard for the rich to carry into the kingdom because they're so satisfied with the things of the earth. And so the hunger in them isn't as intense as those that have to fully surrender to God and fully rely on God for their daily sustenance. That's why we see revival happening in Africa. Because they've got to have God and they're not going to eat. And for us, all of our needs are taken care of. So when we see God putting someone over us who is, I want to be careful with my words here because I want to honor uh, my leaders, but he is not sanctified. Somebody who is doing things that would not line up with the word of God. Then we know that God is actually shifting us and moving us into a time of revival. Because if you look at the historical revivals in the Bible, they didn't need to have, you know, somebody, an evangelist or, or, or an evangelical Christian over them. God actually used evil rulers during the time of every shift 
when he brought a shift and came and, and brought revival, right? Herod. Jesus didn't care if Herod was, you know, in charge. He didn't care if Caesar was in charge. That had nothing to do with the advancement of the kingdom, right? The church grows the greatest under incredible pressure. Every time there are people being martyred in the church, there will be an explosion of church growth. So, die. You just need to die. So the process of sanctification and the glorification can be long or short, and you need to decide this. Depending on your level of surrender to the working of the, of the Spirit of grace, you get to decide how long this is going to take. I've seen people get saved, and within three years, they have actually changed their change in the whole nation. Why? Because they threw everything off. And they said, I will have you in the full measure of who you are and what you have for my life. And others of us, I want to get my mouth with you. You know, I was like, okay, I want to do this, but I love my stuff. Y'all remember that movie, The Joke? I don't know if you've seen it. I saw it back in the 80s. But you remember when he lost all of his money and they were like crying? They were like, it's not about the money, it's about the stuff. We love our stuff here, don't we? You know, it's like the whole lot of our stuff, so why do you come? It's like, it's not wrong. It's not right. You know, how about all of that? You know, it's kind of like the rich ruler who called the, the rich man that comes to Jesus and he says, hey, uh, look, I've done all of these things, and, um, you know, what else do I have to do? And, 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 the, and Jesus says to him, I want you to sell everything. And give it to the but he couldn't do that because he was he was wealthy man, and he was not willing to give his wealth away in order to follow Jesus. But what did Jesus say? In order to follow me, you have to surrender everything to me. He didn't say to him, "I want you to be poor." He's just saying, "This is an area of your life that, that really you need to surrender to me, so that I can make you alive here and I can set you free." Where the Spirit of the Lord is Lord, there is freedom. That means where God is master over that area in your life, when you surrender it to His leadership, therefore you will be free in that area. So when grace is enthroned over the minds of man, we become saved. Justification is salvation, where you're saved from destruction and made whole. Sanctification, oh, by the way, the next thing you have are the next from last week. Um, sanctification is the place where we are made holy, set apart, and consecrated. Glorification, the word glorification means to approve together a glorious condition, a most exalted state. So, open your Bibles, okay, you already have to Romans 4. What happens here is, um, this is really Paul setting up his discussion about grace, and he's, and he's giving the testimony first, and he's telling us about the life of Abraham. And he's saying, listen, this guy Abraham tapped into this grace um, on the other side in the old dispensation, and he did it because he believed. 
He didn't see that he believed that he's actually made the father of faith because of promise coming and the promise and the things that he was promising, God was promising to him, was an impossibility. But yet he believed, and so therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so what, what he's saying there is he tapped into this grace, the revelation of God's grace, and that God is more able to perform what he has promised more than he is able to obtain it. Now, what did Abraham do? Did Abraham walk this out perfectly? No. He doesn't talk about that, does he? He doesn't talk about when Ishmael came along, when they were, they were tearing and they were waiting for the promise. And how many of you do this? You're waiting for the promise of God, and yet you're, you, get, you get tired and discouraged in the waiting, and you're like, and you begin to lose hope, because what are we doing typically? We're looking at the promise, and we're not looking at God. Because when you're looking at God, you will never lose hope. And He is really the promise, not the ministry, not the job, not the husband and the wife. These things are not the promises of God. These are the things that God says, I know what you need. You don't need to ask me for them. The promise of God is being this inheritance in you, brought into the earth. And the promise of God is that you will be a son if you will yield to this new grace. Is that works? Yielding? Is that works? No. So he tells a story about Abraham. And he says, We must believe. The disciples asked Jesus, What are the works of God that we must work in order to? to see your kingdom. And he said, Jesus said, you must believe in me. Because when you get to a place, and here's a principle in the kingdom, what God does is he takes you along the journey and you hit, boom, a wall. Promise is on the other side. And he's made everything in your life impossible to get to the promise, hasn't And you're like, this, is, this, is, this isn't going to happen. So what goes through your mind? God is not what he said to me was a lie. He doesn't really love me. He, he loves everybody else, but he doesn't love me. I'm really not worthy of the obtaining this promise. I got it wrong. And so all of those things, and so what God is saying is that in this place, instead of going around now and creating an Ishmael and beginning to say, well, it's not happening and God's not doing it, so therefore I'm going to go back here and I'm going to start doing it myself. How many of you have done that? I did that once. It cost me like eighty thousand dollars, and it hurt really bad. But the place, the ways of God, are the ways of peace. And so He's saying to us, "Don't create an Ishmael. Just let My grace continue to flow, and be satisfied that I am your portion." So, turning your Bibles to uh, Romans six one through five. Oh, I'm sorry. About justification. Let's read Romans 5, 1-5. Alright. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we, all, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in, 
in hope of the glory of God. He's talking about this, that, that we have been justified in hope of our glorification. Right? He's saying that this is, this is the promise of God for your life, is that He will glorify you with Himself. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulation, knowing that the tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character and character hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. And so he says here, listen, this, uh, you have been justified by faith. You have been justified by this grace. And now you're going to move, move along under glorification, and it's going to cause, but you're going to have to go through the sanctification process, which is going to cause perseverance to rise up in you, which is then going to produce hope. Faith, hope is believing in what you don't see. Hope is staying in your lane and continuing to worship God no matter what hell releases on you and saying, I will not draw back, but I will continue to go forward. Paul says in Hebrews, do not draw back because God will have no pleasure in you if you do. Don't go back to operating in the law and begin to function in the law and try to create an Ishmael when in fact God has something greater for you and He's going to do it for you. But that's where the church is today. We want to do it for God, right? Let's go out and build my kingdom so that I can advance God's kingdom. So the promise here. Now what does He say here? He says... Um, the promise is he saying, therefore we've been justified by faith, we have peace through, through God, uh, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, so we've been made connected with God through Jesus, and now we have peace with God, through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, do we rejoice in the hope of the ministry? Do we rejoice in the hope of uh, whatever, uh, you know, a new house, a new car, a boat, do we rejoice? What are we rejoicing over? We're rejoicing over the fact that we are going to be created into His image. And that He is well able to do this in us. He is faithful to finish what He started. Turn to Romans 6, 25. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through the baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. He's saying we're going to be in the likeness of his resurrection. Do you remember when he was resurrected? that rested on him, in him, and his glorified body. Now that's going to happen on the other side. The 
there is a measure of glory that he's going to pour out on this side. Amen? So, y'all remember the movie The Princess Bride when the guy died and they took him to, oh, I remember the guy's name in that little girl. Miracle Max, that's right. And he said, he's just mostly dead. Well, as the church today, we're just mostly dead. And God is trying to say, would you please just die? Stick a fork in the church. I want to make sure that you are gone. You cannot try to hold on to your own life. That you've got to let go and show him that he can raise you from the dead into the resurrection of his likeness. And he said this in Matthew 16, 24. And when Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross. He doesn't say, take up my cross. He doesn't say, I want you to take up my cross. He says, take up your cross and follow me. And then he says in John 12, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him, my father, will honor. So he's saying, he said, each one of you has been dealt a death of heart. You have a hand. Your hand is unique to your own life. And the circumstances and the difficulties that are being presented to you, he's saying, follow me, take up all of that, all of those circumstances and that cross that you are bearing, and follow me. So that where I am, that's where you will be also. So we're justified, we're saved, we submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In order to be saved, we say, listen, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying there, listen, this isn't about just saying a prayer and getting in and going, okay, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in God, I'm in. And he said, you must believe that Jesus is Lord. He didn't say you must believe on the Christ. He's saying that you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must believe that he is Lord of your life. Meaning you have now given yourself and submitted yourself to the Lordship and the leadership of Jesus Christ. Yeah. I give away the right to control my life when I became a Christian. I gave away the right to drive. Okay, I'm not going to sing this out of Jesus like the deal, but I would if I could sing. Come on, it's so true. Get out of the driver's seat, people. You are a passenger in a journey of life, and Jesus gets to decide where you go. You have such independent spirit. Especially in Texas. I actually like that for Texas, but anyway, it's not good if you're a Christian to be independent. Anyway, in Galatians 2 20, uh, Paul says this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And it's very interesting that he writes this, and it's further along the line after. Talks and learnings about the wrestling within himself. 
that as he went along the journey, he began to mature and grow in his inner man and understand about the grace of God and how to live and function in the grace of God. And that caused him to grow up. You know, you are not, there wasn't like some kind of fairy dust that God put on Paul that made him some sort of superstar. He struggled the same way you struggled. He was a man and had sin issues in his life. And he, and, and he, and he gives such a good example in chapter 7 about, my first go ahead and go there, let's turn to chapter 7. He gives such a good example about how to, to, to um, uh, wrestle this out between grace and the law. And it's so important that we get this. If we get this, if we understand what the truth is about grace, I'm telling you, there is nothing, there is no demon, there is nothing that will stand before you. Okay. It is, um, well, are we all okay? We all doing okay? Are you still with me? All right. Um, okay, I'm going to hit this. Uh, John, would you go get the old um, um, And we're going to do a little experiment. Okay, what he's saying here um, is he's, he's speaking in, in, in chapter 7, verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. And then he goes on in verse 2, and he says this. He gives an example or an analogy. He says, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband lives, she's married, uh, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law that so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, who also have become dead to the law and may be married to another, who is Christ. So he's saying that, that now you are, Christ has come, so therefore your husband, the law, is dead. And before you were saved, you were actually still functioning in the law, and the law was present. And you are under that. And you are married to that. But he's saying, now, listen, um, another has come, Christ has come, and therefore you have been set free from the law, and you have married now the Spirit of grace. And he goes on to talk about how this marriage, if you're continually married to the law, if you continue to go back in the old ways and marry the law, and he says that the children that that marriage will produce and the fruit of that marriage will not be of God. And he says, but if you will, if you will turn to me and let the Spirit of grace come and stay married and produce fruit from the Spirit of grace, then the children or the fruit that you produce will be of God. So as you access grace and allow, allow this place of grace to come alive in you, he's saying that all of the fruit that's going to be part of your life will be on the other side when you get there. Because it will have eternity on it, which means that it will have a measure of God's grace on it, and it will continue to reproduce after itself in the earth. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Everybody stand up and touch your toes. 
para escuchar mi voz. Ahora. Ah, thank you, thank you. All right. Um, then he goes on and he talks about the defense of the law. In verse 7 through 12, he says this, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Okay, so... What he's saying here is the law is now is written on your hearts and your minds. It's, it's just what um, the writer of Hebrews says. But he's saying that this law is really good in that it serves as like an X-ray machine, and it, and it reveals the cancer that is within you. But he said, without the law, you actually would not even understand about sin, and there would be no sin. Isn't that crazy? So what he's saying is because the law came, so he's this young boy and at 13 years old, he, he gets introduced to the law, you shall not cut it, and all of a sudden he's covered. And so he says that the law itself actually caused this dynamic to happen, and I'll give you an example, and I believe it's a spiritual principle. Anything that, you, that somebody says that you can't have, all of a sudden you want it. Okay, man. How many of you wanted that girl that didn't want you? Right? The minute that you go on a diet, all of a sudden, what do you think about? Food. So there is a principle to, to something coming up and saying, you can't ever eat broccoli again. You probably never even thought about broccoli as a, as a food item. Who likes broccoli? Make the house smell, right? Anyway, all of a sudden, and you start thinking about how to put cheese sauce on it, how to bake it into a casserole, and all of a sudden broccoli all this is the thing that you desire. Eat experience the same thing. God is saying, hey, you can eat the pastry and put all these luscious trees and fruits to bake with you. You can eat the, any of these. But there's this one thing that you can't eat that. Uh-oh. So there it is. That's the key. So that's what I believe Paul is saying here. Hmm, okay. We're going to do this one more, and then I'm going to finish the rest of this next week because I think it's really important, and we'll talk about the glorification next week. Um, so then he goes on in verse 13 through 25, and he says this, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he goes on and he begins to talk about the, the, the battle that we have within ourselves with sin. And, and he very clearly says this, listen, he himself struggles uh, 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 with this. In verse 15, he says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. 
For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin dwells in me. For I know that in me nothing good dwells. For the for to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. Verse 19 says this, The good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. How many of you are understanding Paul right now? Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And in verse 21, he said this. Listen, this is cool. so cool. I find then a law that evil is present within me, the one who wills to do good. And so he says, here's this sin, okay? I'm struggling with covetousness. And in this place where this struggle is, I don't want to do this. I don't want to covet what my brother has. I can't. I'm, I'm struggling in this, and the war is the place where he's trying to manage his behavior. And so he said, I know that if this sin is present, then actually that sin is law. That the law is present right there. And he said, I'm, I'm, I'm losing this battle because I'm, I'm warring within myself over this, and I keep trying to manage my behavior, so therefore I won't do what I don't want to do. And he said, and so the Paul is saying, therefore, then a law is, is present right there in that area. Covetedness and the law is now being given hierarchy over the things of the Spirit. Okay? And so, um, uh, uh, John, did you call? Call? That's a call. Okay, so here we've got sin. Okay, a lot of you have seen this before, but I think it's such a good demonstration. Okay, so you've got this in your life. It could be addiction to pornography. It could be um, lust of the eyes. It could be greed. It could be whatever. A gossip. It could be whatever. And so you've got this thing. And, and I'll tell you what, the color of this, and this is what I've learned over the years, will be different for everybody. Some of the sins are, are for some reason, they, they sear the conscience and they make a more indelible mark within us. And so this will actually be a darker color because it takes more of the spirit of grace in order to get rid of it. Does that make sense? All right. So here you've got this sin covetedness. And then what you have here is he goes on. Okay, hold on. Not yet. I'm sorry to put you up there and make you wait. I'm sorry. All right, so he goes on and he talks about being sanctified and he says, how will you sanctify them? And you see, later, Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. In, in, in John 17, Jesus says, sanctify them by, uh, by your truth, for the word is true. This a word here means logos. So the written word is truth. Sanctify them by my word. And then in Ephesians 5.26, he says this, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. This word means rhema. And so he's saying that by my spoken word, and that means that a word that is uttered by a living voice. Okay? And then he's saying that what this is, is this is the evidence of the priesthood 
that will give themselves to a place of hearing God for themselves and allowing the washing of the rainbow word and the opinion of God over this situation in their lives. Amen? And so he takes this the spirit of grace and he begins to wash us. And this right here was the law. And the law was functional, but until the law is, until grace is added to the law, it is unsanctified. And so he says, you must wash it with my word and with the rhema word, the spirit of grace, so that this place can be cleansed. Because in this place, you, you operate as an orphan, and he's wanting you to become a son. And through that process, what you're doing is you're saying, I trust the leadership of your word over the leadership of my strength and my mind. That I can manage myself into holiness. And that's where the church has, I believe, the majority of the church has failed because they've said that the spirit of grace is the law and that we, or, or they, they taught the law and that here's all of the things that you need to do in order to sanctify yourself. But Jesus is being very clear, you cannot sanctify yourself. You cannot justify yourself. You cannot glorify yourself. And he said, I will make you into this place. And so we're going to pick up here and we're going to really talk more about the, a little bit about the sanctification. And we're going to talk next week about being glorified with God and this place of authority and this place of, that I really call, I, I call it, you know, keeping us between the ditches because there's two different places of the law that we fall into the ditch. Are y'all being dead? All right. Um, if you need healing in your body, I want you to come up. There were actually leaves that were being spread. How many of you got healed during worship? Did you come in with something? Did anybody get healed during worship? Bob, you did? Okay. I just saw I just saw leaves falling and they were healing me during worship. So um, I think there's a there is definitely um Holy Spirit's present here today and wanting to heal. So I encourage you to come up. But let me pray for you. Father, I ask you that you would a revelation of your glory. You would give us a revelation of your love. Father, that you didn't leave us as orphans, but your heart to take us to this place where we fully are adopted by you. I'm asking God that you would wash us by the water of your word and that you would open our eyes and our ears that we can fully see and hear what the Spirit is saying. And we're asking for the double portion right unto the glorification of the Son. Make us your children. Pray that you would bless everyone here. May we have a wonderful day. Enjoying freedom.